I'm Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune, and this is Point of Order, a podcast about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the people and politics and traditions of the 86th Texas Legislature. This week, hello, we must be growing. The undeniable truth of any session is that the decisions made by House and Senate members today are really about tomorrow, about building and planning for the best possible future for this state and its residents, for us. Much of that future is unknown, but a few things are certain. For one, we know the population of Texas is exploding. There are just under 29 million Texans in 2019, but that number is projected in a plausible scenario to hit 54 million, nearly double, by 2050. If you're asking where we're going to put all those people, short of doing something blasphemous like annexing Oklahoma, you're not alone. On some days already, it feels like we're stuffing 12 pounds of rice into a 10-pound bag. Do we have the physical and social infrastructure in place, roads, bridges, sewers, water, healthcare, broadband, to accommodate what's coming? We also know that Texas is getting more urban, despite the lovely old myth that we're a rural state, a ranching state, an ag state. We really haven't been for some time. Today, more than 80% of us live east of Interstate Highway 35, and closer to 90% of us live in urban areas. All but about 5% of the growth in our population between now and 2050 will occur in the 82 metropolitan counties. It's reasonable to ask during this or any other session whether we're legislating and appropriating like the urban state we've become, with opportunities but also challenges on the public ed, public health, and transportation fronts, among many others. And of course, we know Texas is changing demographically, by the year, by the month, seemingly by the minute. In 2019, a comfortable majority of our population, 57% is Texans of color. By 2040, they will likely be a super majority. Even in a state where diversity is our destiny, this presents, again, challenges to go along with opportunities. Since so many of the communities in which the precipitous change is occurring, in nearly every case currently or soon-to-be Hispanic majority communities have historically lagged behind in all kinds of investment from the state. Taken together, these three drivers are the inputs that drive the outputs at the Capitol, or should, as my guest this week has been saying for at least the last nine years. Lloyd Potter is the Texas state demographer, appointed to that post in May 2010 by Governor Rick Perry. He is our chief number cruncher, analyst, and most sought after of all presenters on everything related to population estimates and projections and what they portend for public policy and politics. It's quite a place and quite a time to be in that business, as we discussed when we sat down on the morning of May 14th, day 127 of the 140. of order is supported by Texas Central. Texas is growing. The Texas Central high-speed train provides a solution to moving the growing number of Texans. Learn more at texascentral.com. And by the Texas Association of Freestanding Emergency Centers, standing with Texans statewide who seek access to emergency care without health plan interference. Visit myemergencymychoice.com. And the Texas State University System, Texas's first university system 
with seven institutions spanning 700 miles. More at tsus.edu. So of all the statistics, the one that never fails to get me is we're adding more than 1,000 people to the population of Texas every single day? Yes, every single day, at least um, recently that's been the case, and actually that's been going on for some time. That's crazy. I mean, I feel like sometimes when I try to go to dinner in South Austin and I'm sitting in South Congress in traffic that all 1,000 are there at that very moment. Right. Well, probably not that far away from it, but um, but yes, there are 1,000 people I think one of the the things that I hear often misstated is I'll hear people frequently say there's a thousand people moving to Texas every day. No, we're just adding them to the population. Adding them to the population. So that's the distinction to be made that we're growing from natural increase. About half of our population changes right. from more births than deaths. So so let's come to that in a second. Okay. I want to just stay with that thousand okay. a day number because again I'm just completely like spazzy right. and obsessed about that actual number. So if you think it's more than a thousand a day, you take that out for the course of a year, we are basically adding a city the size of Arlington to Texas every single year. And Arlington is among the largest cities in the state. I think it's number seven. Yeah, a little less than 400,000 people every year. Every single year. Can Mm -hmm. we sustain that? Doesn't it at some point begin to reverse back on itself? That kind of growth is great. It's a good talking point. We like having all these people here. But doesn't it just become a problem existentially and practically? Well, Texas is a big state, and certainly we have a taste for economic growth, and that's kind of you know very much part of our lexicon is talking about how we're growing economically. And so, so it is hard to think about, well, if we keep at this pace, you know, is it ever going to get to a place where there's so many people that our quality of life is going down and and some people will probably argue there are places in the state where that is happening where it's where it's so crowded so crammed in that you can't get i mean again let's take south austin as a great example you try to get from the capital across congress avenue across the ann richards bridge and then down to a fancy shishi restaurant in south austin these days you would think the point of texas being ruined is already here yeah, right. I mean, that's definitely, and that's happening if you look at Houston, other, Dallas, yeah. other places have mm-hmm. the same uh, have right. the same uh, version of this. Um, so I went back and looked at the numbers that you all at the Texas State Data Center uh, publish. And so the problem that we have today with this growth being so kind of unfathomable is one thing. But if you go back to 2010, I love this. Between 2010 and 2018, the population of the United States in total grew by 6%. Population of Texas, first among the states, grew by 14%. We are more than double the population growth of the country in Texas as a percentage Yeah, so we're growing faster than any other state and numerically more than any other state. So there's more people. And we added 3.5 million Texans in that period. And the number of Texans we added just since 2010 is greater than the populations of a lot of states, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is the economic, you mentioned the economic growth or economic development that in some ways is enabled by population. Is it the economic growth that is causing the population to grow because people are attracted to the state as a place to come and start businesses or come to work or make their lives and therefore the population grows or does population growth itself create economic development by virtue of taxes paid and jobs created and and all that kind of stuff? How are those things? Yeah, I I mean, it's a chicken and egg kind of thing. I mean, so it's not, there's not, it's not one, one or the other, or the other. Yeah. 
but if you don't have an economic base and economic growth, then you're not going to attract the initial population that kind of then also, because essentially when people move to an area, they start and they get a job, they're going to start purchasing things. So they're essentially contributing. By food, by gas, by clothes. And that creates employment right. opportunities. Right? right. And so it's sort of a perpetual machine right. of economic development. Mm -hmm. But again, until it isn't, until at some point that growth becomes more of a clog in the pipe. And maybe that never happens, but I guess it's something we have to always be on the lookout for. Yeah, and there, there, are, there are other drivers. I mean, certainly there are the economic drivers in terms of employment opportunities, but there's also people that just say, I want to move to Austin, Texas, and I'll find a job when I get there. So right. there are people that are making sort of lifestyle decisions, and they're just anticipating that they'll be able to make that work economically. You know, the public policy implications are really what I care about. I mean, I'm you know, I complain all I want about the fact that it's hard to get from one place to another someplace in Texas. But there are real-world, real-life implications for this. This many people causes our public schools to be crowded, arguably overcrowded. This many people make it harder to get into college. You know, there are a limited number of spots. If you've got more people competing for that same number of spots, it's more competitive to get into college. We have a problem of access to health care. We have a problem with transportation. You know, those things decided up at the Capitol – are where the rubber meets the road. In some cases, literally meets the road, right? right? Yeah, I mean, without question, the investment in infrastructure almost needs to happen before the population changes, but that's pretty rare instance that that actually happens. Because right. infrastructure takes a lot of time and investment to put in place. And so, <clears throat> I mean, often I'll even say... Austin, back in the 60s and, well, let's say the 70s and 80s, never thought it was going to grow the way that it grew. And the, and the infrastructure was not, and, and probably the, the city council and so on was almost like, if we don't build it, they won't come. And they came anyway. They didn't and, build it and they came anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, that really gets to the point. So you, you, you have the opportunity, if you know this change is coming, to invest or not invest, and then you own the decision that you make. Correct. If you don't know that the change is coming or if you're in denial about the change coming, then presumably you don't act. Was the growth in the population that we have seen over these last eight years, say 2010 to 2018, just to pick that time period because we have data on that, something that if you go back to 2008, 2009, that we knew was coming? Yeah, I mean, so certainly the Texas Demographic Center produces population projections, and we've been doing that since before my time. And if you look at those and evaluate them in terms of how close they are to how things turned out to be, they tend to be pretty close. So if you assume that those are going to be correct, and they tend to be our projections, then you could say, well, people certainly could anticipate, if not know, that we're going to grow um, at a certain level. So then the legislature is not off the hook. In other words, I'm looking, you know, I'm the data I'm, the data have been there and it's yeah. kind of been I'm I'm in journalism. I'm all about blaming people. I'm looking <laughs> for villains I want to point a finger at. And so I'm looking up the street at the Capitol and I'm thinking, you guys, you either knew this was coming and chose not to act, which is unforgivable, or you didn't know it was coming. Maybe you should have known, but you didn't know. Now, if you're telling me that the data was there and that you told them, and in fact, 
there's like a march of the penguins up Congress Avenue every legislative session where people like you go up and testify at committee hearings, talk to the subject matter experts in the legislature and say, let us tell you what's happening out in the world so that you can make smart decisions on behalf of the, of the state. You did tell them. Yes. You tell them every time. And you can go to our website and see it any day, any hour. Well, it's a lot to ask legislators <laughs> but, to go to yeah, your but, website. But they Mr. have Potter. staff, but and, on, right. and they can call us. We're, we'll give it to them. But uh, the point is they knew, or they should have known. Yes. Yes. And yet, in many instances, they've chosen not really to invest, at least to the degree that they've kept up with the growth. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, it's not, I think to be fair, it's probably difficult to really, you know, link how much infrastructure do you need to build to accommodate so many people. There are people that could tell you that. I mean, but, you know, if you're just an average person, it's like, well, if you're adding 1,000 people per day, how many new roads of highway, um, how many miles of new highway do you need? How many new schools do you need? Where are you going to put those? And where are you going to build new, or where are we going to need power plants? How about water? I mean, all of these infrastructure things that we know at, with the growing population, they're going to be stressed, but you don't necessarily know 10 years out, well, how much of that do I need to build to accommodate this and where do I need to build it? Presumably somebody has a point of view about that. Yes. Oh. No. And, and again, you can look, we do geographic projections, so you can kind of see where we're anticipating if current trends continue, where we'll see the growth occurring and where the, there's going to be increased density. Right. So, so yeah, it's it certainly is feasible, but somebody certainly has to dig in on that. You know, urban planners need to be engaged in it. You know, certainly people at the local level need to kind of be engaged in this as well, which right. theoretically... It, t it takes everybody kind of putting in together, working side by side to, to figure out what the answer is. Right. You just tell them what the conditions are this on is, the ground, and then right. you let them figure out how to deal how with it. How to accommodate it. Right. right. So back to this question of, of, of how the new population in Texas breaks down. So as I understand the numbers, the most recent numbers, slightly more than half of the growth is from natural increase. That's yes, births, births and deaths. Minus deaths. Births yeah. minus deaths. And slightly less of the, of the increase is from net migration, which is people coming from other places domestically and people coming from other places internationally. Net. Net. Yeah, yeah. Net. Net migration. Right. Um, at the moment, the majority of those people who come from someplace else are coming from international places, not from domestic places, from yes. other countries, not other states. Yes, well, that's the second straight year that's happened. Yes. But that's a change. Um, it is. I think it, if you look historically, there, you can find years where there were more migrant immigrants than domestic migrants coming into Texas. But certainly the last couple of years we're seeing uh, there's been a slowdown in domestic migration, a slight slowdown of domestic migration to the state. I think that may in part be associated with, or, or in the data we're looking at are a couple years old. Um, so it might be somewhat associated with shifts in the price of oil. If we look now at the Permian Basin, for example, it's just kind of taken off in terms of population. So growth. if you get a year or two out and you have the opportunity to look back at this period, you may actually see more domestic migration because yeah. people are coming no, I think, to find, yeah, I think next year find we'll, their fortunes. We'll see that that may shift a little bit more toward the domestic migration side compared to international. Is there anything that it could be, do you think? I mean, you understand these numbers better than just about anybody, and you've been doing this job for nine years, so you've had time to understand whether your instincts are good or bad about this. Mm -hmm. do you, is there any reason other than 
chasing the buck that people might come to Texas or not being able to chase the buck that they might not come to Texas? Are there other significant um, enticements or impediments to population growth? Domestic migration. But yeah, for domestic migration, I'd say that's the driver. I mean, there, that's not to say that there, there aren't other smaller um, drivers of domestic migration. So retirement migration, if you look at the Hill Country, Fredericksburg, Kerrville, that whole area, very significant retirement communities that are growing there. Um, the lower Rio Grande Valley also. I mean, so, so you do see people retiring. You have people that are moving to join family members. So if I was young and got a, a job and my parents were someplace else and they were retired, they may decide they want to come and live and happen to get a job in Texas. They, my parents may decide they want to move to be closer to me and, and my children. And so you have yeah, but you know, presumably that's happening in other states as well, right? I mean, the fact yeah, is no, it, but the drive, the yeah. So then the driver of that is the economic migration. That's that's then then there's this multiplier effect of migration that right. is occurring. Well, let's talk about exactly how this has shifted because I think these numbers are also fascinating. So from 2005 to 2013, 5.9 million people moved to Texas, and 4.8 million of those came from other states. Mm -hmm. That's 2005 to 2013. Since 2010, people from other states accounted for almost 30% of the growth in our population compared to 23% from international migration immigrants, right. right? But in the last two years, international migration is now closer to 28%. People moving from other states is down to about 22%. So the switch has flipped. I mean, that's it, yeah. right? We now the last, see- Last couple of uh, years of data that we have, yeah, we've yeah. seen that. Any reason why people from other countries coming to Texas might be more of a thing in the last couple of years? Any- well, One or two again, reasons? part of it has to do with a downturn in domestic migration. So that just by nature increases the percentage. Because the overall numbers uh, uh, increase in population year over year in Texas, while still pretty robust and leading the nation, is actually down, right? Wasn't it close to the yeah, half our, a million growth, year over year? Between years six, uh, 17 yeah. and 18 was slower than it was er than er earlier. This so in part, the shift in the percentages just may be that there's a, uh, there were fewer people coming to Texas than there were a couple years ago. And where that drop has occurred has been people moving from other states. That just may be part yeah, of it. Yeah, and the international migration tends to be fairly stable, for, for at least yeah. if we look at um, authorized immigration. It's largely driven um, by how many visas are given out, and that number is stable from year to year. So. Right. For a long time, the perception was that much of the international migration came from Latin America. And that's that's a actually shift. a yeah. shift, isn't it? Because right now... <clears throat> I mean, honestly, for about the last 10 or more years since the recession here, 2008-2009, um, net migration from Mexico was actually down, in some cases, to zero or negative, Yeah, there it? was a year that it was estimated there was reverse migration. But, so. but nonetheless, it's still not anything like what people no. assume it is now. No. In fact, 45% of our international migrants in 2016 came from Asia. Right. Right? Asia is a significant source of and a lot of this population. a huge growth. shift from... Earlier in uh, like 2005 or so, like 70-something percent of the immigrants were from Latin America and only 30-something percent, from, or even less than 30 percent. From, were from Asia. From Asia. So what is it about Texas right now that makes it a magnet for people coming from Asia? Well, um, one, we have economic opportunity, but two... I mean, in some ways, that's <laughs> going to be the answer to every question <laughs> I asked you today. Yes. What's one plus one? Economic <laughs> opportunity. Exactly. Right. But, but that... Uh, is also essentially the 
the process of immigration in the United States is largely driven through the family reunification visas that people um, sponsor a family member. So if, if you came here in the early 2000s as a student and you know got a, your PhD in chemical engineering and you then got an H, a company sponsored you, you got an H-1B visa, pathway to citizenship, then, well, I want to bring my parents over or my siblings, and then you're able to sponsor them. So essentially, the, the base of individuals that are living in Texas who are Asian immigrants, kind of the early immigrants, are, is big enough now to where they're able to sponsor um, family members to come under right. this family reunification. And, that's, and that at the same time that we're seeing this decline in immigration from um, Mexico, Central, and South America. And then that flips the switch on the percentages. Right. right. Does the, the change in federal policy or in the tone of voice that the federal government is speaking in as it relates to immigration potentially change those numbers in the next couple of years? You know, we have a federal government and a White House and an administration that is much less interested in allowing unlimited numbers of people to come to this country, not just undocumented immigration, but also documented immigration. There's a discussion of reducing the number of legal immigrants as well as illegal immigrants. So do we see those numbers potentially getting ready to shift in Texas as a consequence of what's happening in Washington today? If, if that does happen in Washington, then certainly it will affect Texas, given the large volume of immigrants. Right. If you go immigrants, up the mountain, you come down the mountain. That's right. pretty much it. And California will be there as well, and New York. Right. I mean, they're kind of the big immigrant. I'm correct state. that among the states that send people to Texas where people move here, the biggest number of domestic migrants currently comes from California. Right. right now, we hate nothing in the world as much as we hate California. Right? This must be repellent to the people who <laughs> lead this state. All these damn Californians coming. But for whatever the reason, and they have suggestions as to what those reasons may be low taxes, predictable regulation, you know, all those things that they've been touting for years and years. Texas is kind of the inverse from a policy standpoint of California, right? Yeah. So the assumption has to be that, you know, they're the land of the oppressed and we're the land of the free. And so part of the reason people are coming from California in such great numbers is they want to be living in a land of the free. Sounds uh, like a political <laughs> campaign, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose. But I, I think if you probably look... A demographer look, can have a point <laughs> of view about that. Come on, let your hair down, Lloyd. If you look at, at the economic differentials, um, if you think about... How much? Uh, I have a brother that lives just north of San Francisco, so one of those Californians. So I can't hate all of them, um, <laughs> but I don't think he's moving to Texas anytime soon. Um, but if we look at at the cost of living in the San Francisco area, most any place in California, certainly any of the urbanized areas in California, it is just phenomenal relative to even the cost of living here in Austin. And Austin being kind of one of the highest cost of living. We, we, we think that we have wacky uh, problems with affordability here. We're nothing compared to the Bay Area. Correct. Right. Yeah. And so, so the issue would be if you were, let's say you were a tech, um, working in the tech industry in San Francisco, and Texas Instruments or Dell offered you a position here and offered to pay you less money than you were making in San Francisco, you could come here, buy a bigger house, probably buy a new car, um, and have everything and then what you had in San Francisco and you're still, your net worth is going to grow you're much still faster. Ahead. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's as simple and as complicated all at once as that. Yeah. And we have a good quality of life here as well. I mean, so, I mean, some people in San Francisco might argue 
know. I uh, kind of dig the weather up there, but I'll, I'll grant you yeah. that the weather here is pretty You can good. go visit and come you back. Can, you can go visit and just don't, <laughs> don't stay. Right. All right, I want to talk about where in Texas the growth is occurring. I want to kind of drill down. This is okay. we're sort of two population nerds having a conversation okay. now. Okay. More than a third of the people added last year were in the Dallas-Fort Worth metro area. Why? Dallas is not the largest. <laughs> Dallas is not the largest population center in the state. It's actually third, right? Houston is yeah, number but four, it's, uh, and, really and San Antonio the... seven. Dallas is nine. Right. So why are more people moving to the number nine region? Well, say, in or, terms of region, I was, wouldn't it's actually say not it's number the nine. city. Yeah, I get it. The city, city yeah. Um, but the, I mean, the region is huge. I mean, in terms of having Fort Worth, it's not Worth. just the cities; it's also the suburbs, which right. are themselves so you, fast they growing. Refer to it as the metroplex, and and so. Essentially, what we've seen happen in Dallas and Dallas, Dallas County and Dallas City are kind of interesting in that it actually has experienced for several years net out domestic migration. So there are more people leaving Dallas, um, domestic migrants, than are moving in. Uh, and many of those are moving out to the suburban ring uh, county. So you have um, Collin County and Denton County, which is Plano and... Um, Denton. Um, and so the so those counties are growing a lot. Um, and there's there's real economic engines there. I, th I mean, if you if you look at um, you know the fact that Toyota headquarters moved there. Into Plano. Uh, right, yeah. AT&T uh, moved its headquarters um, much to the chagrin of San, San Antonio, Antonio to, to Dallas. Dallas. Right. Uh, and so you see a lot of corporate um, both headquarters as well as just corporate presence growing yep. very dramatically in that area. Of course, I always think that the San Antonio airport is one of the great missed opportunities of San Antonio. Um, it makes it hard to attract companies to San Antonio with the airport, not nearly what, say, DFW airport is. So does the fact that DFW airport yes. is such a, a great locus of so many uh, ways Without to question. get from... Without yeah, question. I mean, that's, so that's the, the decision, and actually Atlanta is another example of where an airport made a huge difference in the trajectory of an urban area. Um, so, so the DFW airport, once they put that in, things have just really taken off because it, you can get pretty much anywhere in the world on a nonstop flight right. from there very easily, and certainly almost anywhere in the United States that way. And so there's a, a lot of opportunities there, but then it's also like this freight hub as well in terms of freight coming up I-35 from Mexico. I mean, tremendous amount of freight goes up and down I-35 from DFW airport right. down to Mexico and back and the, forth. The Dallas economic engine as it relates to the entire state is probably something that we don't talk about enough. I mean, a, lot, yeah. a lot of talk about Houston and Harris County being such a significant percentage of our GDP every year or our gross state product every year. But the fact is that the DFW metro region contributes pretty significantly. Yeah, very right? much so. And if you look at all of the cities around there in the last year from 17 to 18, the cities and the counties in the DFW area are just growing more Gr and grow faster. Growing like nuts. Well, in yeah. fact, so I looked at the list that you all published of the 10 counties in the U.S. that grew the fastest in the last year mm -hmm. and then the 10 counties in the U.S. that added the most people in the last year. And in each case, four of the top 10 grew the fastest on a percentage basis or added the most people, four of the 10. In the metroplex area. Yeah. So <laughs> the, uh, the fastest growing counties, Comal, Kaufman, Midland, and Hood counties were in the top 10. There mm -hmm. were a total of eight of the fastest growing counties in the U.S. 
Eight in the top 20 were in Texas. Yeah. The counties that added the most population year over year, Harris, Collin, Tarrant, and Bear, all in the top 10, and nine of the top 20 counties in the U.S. that added the most people are in Texas. It's nuts. It is. It's, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, you know, Harris County alone right now, this was said to me a couple of weeks ago by somebody that said it matter-of-factly, and I went, file that away, and then I stepped back and thought about it. Harris County would be the 25th largest state in America by population. If you just (laughs) clipped Harris County out and made it a state, right? So you probably shouldn't suggest that because the legislature is in session and even they can't file any new bills. So they well, actually, if they cut out <laughs> Harris County, they might actually be able to get more Republicans in the legislature, right, given how blue uh, it in, was last yeah, time. Not right? in Dallas County. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. But, but in some ways, though, as you alluded to, the suburbs are as much of the conversation as anything when it comes to population growth. The growth in the suburbs is actually outpacing the growth in cities. Collin in growth is ahead of Tarrant and Bear. Fort Bend is ahead of Travis. Williamson is ahead of Dallas over mm. the last year. Those counties are growing faster. <laughs> Yeah, and that that's probably largely a function of of uh, what there's kind of this concentric growth patterns that occur. So that essentially, as land use gets determined in an urban core, um, opportunities for new residential or new commercial or industrial um, property become limited. Then they have to move further and further out. Of course, I think you know. Part of it is affordability. It's just become really expensive to live in a lot of these cities. I joke all the time with the mayor of Austin that, you know, why did the legislative seats in Roundville, Round Rock and Pflugerville and, and sort of Leander Cedar Park areas go from red to blue in the last election? It's because under Mayor Adler, the city of Austin has become so unaffordable that people with Austin values and Austin votes have been pushed out of the city up until the northern suburbs. And a consequence of that is that now the northern suburbs are purple. Of course, he says that's crazy, you know. Yeah, I mean, well, there, I mean, there may be some political blame to, to share there, but essentially a lot of it is just basic economics. If so you can't kinda... afford to live in Austin, you move to Leander. <laughs> but if you're an Austin kind of person or an Austin kind of voter, maybe you vote blue as opposed to red in those communities. And again, look at what happened in the last election. Colin was much more open to uh, Democrats. Fort Bend has arguably gone from red to blue and maybe mm. is lost, yeah. right? And that's now kind of a Democratic stronghold. Uh, Lupe Valdez won Hayes County against Greg Abbott in the governor's race. Beto O'Rourke won Williamson County. I mean, the fact is these are suburban counties that until recently you never would have thought would entertain the idea of a Democrat. That may be partly population shifts that are driving it. Yeah, I think, I, well, it is population shifts that are driving it. I mean, that's essentially it that we're having. Again, they're both people moving from out of state, out right. of country, but then you also have shifting of people within Texas as well. And if, From one place to another. Yeah, there's a, 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 I mean, we tend to draw the boundary around Texas, but there's tremendous movement within the state um, from right. one So, let, So let's talk about specifically what that is. 2010 to 2018, fastest growing counties in Texas during that period. Hayes County grew by 42%. And Hayes, Hayes County is, um, is, is uh, San Marcos. It's just south of Austin, right. north of San Antonio. San Marcos right. is this. Uh, Fort Bend County grew by 35%. Williamson County grew by 34%. Collin County grew by almost 29% in that period of eight years. That kind of population growth is not just about new Texans. It's about people moving from the cities to the suburbs or other places to those suburbs. And when you dilute that population... 
you potentially change the politics. Yeah, that, that, that's a fair assessment. I want to talk about r- rural, if you don't mind, okay. versus urban. So, you know, we have this idea that somehow Texas is a rural state, proud rural traditions, and that will always be Texas to some degree. But you all break down the population into three categories. Metropolitan, which is kind of urban population. Mm-hmm. Micropolitan, which is, how would small you define ci- that? Small cities. Smaller that are cities. Give me an some- example. An example of a micropolitan city. How, how big a population would qualify as micropolitan? Like maybe 50,000, something like that. Okay. It's kind of not, or a little bit less. And then non-metro and micro is maybe more what we're thinking about as traditional rural Texas and rural communities, right? Yeah. It would Are be like cit- an urbanized yeah. area surrounded by... Yeah. Are there cities that we think of as rural that have populations of more than 50,000. Well, presumably Lubbock and Amarillo would be two examples of cities that we probably think of more traditionally as rural, even though there's a lot of rural around them. But if you, I mean, they're pretty urbanized. They're pretty big. They're suburbanized. I mean, driving through them, they feel, have a very suburban feel. Well, where where I'm going with this is that so much of this, of the state's population today, despite what you think about rural and urban Texas as both being these big components of, of, of our state and our identity, in 2010, 88% of Texans lived in what you would consider to be metropolitan areas, true mm-hmm. urban areas. Right. Less than 6% lived in those non-metro micro areas, kind of real rural areas. Mm-hmm. By 2030, that's going to be closer to 4% will live in rural. Now, 1.5 million of us will live in what we think of as rural parts of Texas in 2030 out of a projected state population of at least 35 million at that time. So it's a very small percentage. But think about this. Even at 1.5 million living across Texas in in rural communities, rural Texas will still be larger than the entire populations of, even at (laughs) 1.5 million, rural Texas will still be larger than the populations of New Hampshire, Maine, Rhode Island, Montana, Delaware, both Dakotas, Alaska, Vermont, and Wyoming. (laughs) Rural Texas would still be the 41st largest state in the country even in 2030, even with all the changes and the rapid urbanization. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. It is. A lot of people still in rural Texas. <laughs> yeah, but they're, they're essentially, if you look at many of the rural parts of the state, they're losing population. Right. So so there's this, essentially, I think probably about 30 or so counties have natural decrease, more deaths than births. Um, and and many of them, I think about ninety or so, have probably have net out domestic migration. So people net moving right. out. Well, twenty ten to twenty eighteen, again to use that frame which you guys use at the data center, from twenty ten to twenty eighteen, ninety six counties lost population. Right. Those are the counties in the parts of Texas that we consider to be rural. I had four Price, state legislator from Amarillo, mm-hmm. here a couple of. Right. Weeks ago, interview on this podcast, we were talking about rural Texas, and he said that there was testimony before uh, a committee that he heard that somewhere north of 80% of the population of Texas today lives east of Interstate Highway 35. 87. 87, so it's approaching 90, (laughs) lives east of I-35. Again, 87% of, what are we, 29 million today, still leaves more than 3 million living in rural and you know, non I thirty five west of I thirty five communities, mm-hmm. which is a lot. Right. But God, all of us are crammed into one <laughs> little part of the state. Yeah. The 
where the population triangle, um, the Dallas, so, Houston, and and uh, um, San Antonio, San Antonio also, right? The old right. Uh, Southwest Airlines cocktail napkin triangle, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but that that's it's it's extraordinary to me to think about that. That that is not going to change, Lloyd. Is it that that trend line of becoming more and more urban over time, cities growing, growing, yeah, growing, is not going to change. We'll we'll continue to be urban and more and more urban, and the suburban areas will become more urban, and the suburban areas will move further and further out. So that urban areas will leach into suburban areas, turning them urban. Yeah. And the suburbs will leach into non-suburban areas, turning them more suburban. Right. So eventually there'll be less and less of the state that will not be suburban or urban. That's how the growth right. is going to yes. occur. Yes. Where is that the most problematic right now? If you're living in a community that you think of as rural, small-town Texas, where are you most at risk right now of the suburbs eating your lunch? Well, the DFW, the Metroplex area. I mean, if you the counties that are kind of now eking up into the fast-growing counties – weren't even on the list five years ago. Right. Um, so they all of a sudden now they were pretty much rural counties. Um, I'm trying to think what some of them are. I think I want to say Rains, and there's a couple of others that are in the suburban ring that were very rural. Now all of a sudden they're they're now in terms of pace of growth yeah. picking up, and and I would expect they'll continue, and eventually they'll be adding, be in the numeric growth columns, and then you'll see the counties out beyond them. Begin. Right. What, what are the implications if you're a legislator and you're thinking about spending money out of the state budget or you're thinking about funding public education or higher ed or you're thinking about spending money on health care in a state where we've lost more rural hospitals, more rural hospitals closed over the last decade than any other state in the country. You're seeing this change in where people are located or this growth in these areas. What are the implications if you're that guy or that woman at the legislature from a public policy standpoint of what you just said? Well, I, I'm, I don't envy them. Um, it's a very, if you're, especially if you're representing a population in the rural parts of the state, it's very difficult if you're seeing your population uh, base declining, you're seeing closing of health clinics, retail outlets. Um, Do you but, think the budget that we pass every two years is a budget of an urban state that acknowledges the reality of population or are we nostalgic for a time from an appropriation standpoint when the distribution of, of Texans was different than it is today? Well, I'm, I think Texas is tends to be nostalgic in, by nature. I mean, we kind of tend to think yeah, But about, isn't it kind of dumb to budget on the basis of nostalgia? I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to make a claim one way or the other. However, we have, the, as we've just been talking about, this tremendous, most significant growing population in the country in our urban areas. And, and you know, you could argue that we're not budgeting enough to ensure that we have the infrastructure that will uh, allow us to maintain our quality of life, to continue to attract industry here, because they're, right. they're going to want to find a place where they can get a, a labor force, but also where it's a good quality of life, where there's power, there's water, where they can move their goods to and from market. And, right. and that really is the point, is we have one of two choices. We can either invest enough, and we can argue about what enough is, mm -hmm. to ensure that we have enough of a foundation underneath all that growth, that it can hold it up, all that weight, right. or we cannot invest, and our foundation today will buckle, surely, 
under the weight of all that growth and will collapse. I think that's a reasonable statement. One or the other. It's binary. <laughs> black and white. I love a black and white demographer. That's good. So let me ask you about demographic inevitability. Speaking of demography, the fact that our population is getting more and more diverse, probably it's more diverse by the end of this podcast than it was at the yes. beginning. So here's the big question, and you have to answer it. Don't dodge. Okay. What is the precise moment at which the Hispanic population of Texas will be in the majority? Oh. Precise moment. Be specific. <laughs> I want a date I and I want a time. I want a time. <laughs> I don't know if I can give you a time. I can get date. I pro- the, did you say Hispanic? Hispanic majority. When will the Hispanic population in Texas be more than 50%? I don't care if it's oh. 50.0001%. Date and time. No, I can't give you that one right now. Can but you, I can, can say non-Hispanic, that they'll exceed non-Hispanic white. Uh, probably about 2022. The, the prediction um, I've heard is that that is where the streams are going to cross, that the Hispanic population will become the largest ethnic subgroup in Texas. Right. And, and that I, is, by the way, the next statewide elections. Really interesting to consider the the impact of that potentially if voter turnout trends. Yeah. I mean, certainly you have challenges with the Latino population in terms of both eligibility as well as... Um, Right, but the growth in the population is still the growth of the population. So how come you can't and, and predict? Yeah, how come you can't predict the? Why can't you answer my question about when it's going to be a majority? Um, because I have to go back and look at some. So <laughs> I have a lot of numbers floating around in my head. So well, I'm you're a like, demographer. I know, okay, I know well, you I'll, do. I'll go commit that one to memory, and next yeah. time we talk. But I don't you get you. asked that all the time? Isn't that kind of the big question? Uh, I would say probably not so much anymore. I mean, I think the the thing that 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 had been and and still is an issue for us is the fact that we have a growing Latino population and educational attainment among Latinos is, is lower. very different compared to all other race ethnic groups, but certainly compared to non-Hispanic Well, the, the implications of our demographic inevitability from a public policy standpoint are actually right there in front of us. I don't even have to ask you about that because we talk about it all the time. Lower graduation rate from high school, lower level of college readiness coming out of school, mm-hmm. lower matriculation rates at higher ed, lower completion rates in higher ed, significantly less insured than the rest of the state, which itself is significantly less insured than the country, the rest of the country yeah. lower household income, higher unemployment rate in the predominantly Hispanic areas, higher percentage living at or below the poverty line, less access to broadband, I could go on, right? I mean, really the change in the population toward a Hispanic majority status probably only elevates these public policy challenges in the eyes of our legislators and not just in the eyes of our legislators. Yeah, I mean, I think without question, if you're, if you start doing the basic math that you just kind of articulated and, and commit that to memory and think about, well, what are we going to need to do to ensure that our labor force has this level, this percentage of people with uh, associate's degrees in this area and so on. And so the Higher Education Coordinating Board certainly has been working pretty hard to try to figure that out. Right, they're aware of the problem, but the fact is nobody has a solution. Yeah, right. it's not it's not that's been uh, implemented other than, right. you know, I, I think that generally speaking, people think that starting kind of from the cradle is the place to go is, you know, for all of the early childhood education. And right. and, and, one, and one aspect of this, uh, Lloyd, that people don't talk about, I think, enough is that the population is not just changing in the direction of more and more Hispanic Texans, but by virtue of that, the age of our population is 
getting younger, right? The average age. I mean, the fact is one out of every two Texans under the age of 18 today is Hispanic. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, so we're, it's, it's a young population. If you look at the bell curve. Yeah, the Latino population is, is younger. Young. I mean, the Texas population, our median age is eking up, but it's still, we're, one of, we're one of the fourth, maybe the fourth youngest state in the country. And that's the point, that as the, where, where the growth of the population is occurring is in a population that is, by and large, younger very young, yeah. than older. And mm -hmm. that's going to create, at the entry point to school, both public ed and higher ed, that's just going to create more and more in the pipe than we have. Right, and then the, as those individuals age out of right. uh, education, then they'll enter the labor force. And so one of the big questions then is, well, are the jobs that we're, that our labor force will be prepared to fill are essentially low-paid, low-skilled kinds of jobs, meaning then you know median household income or median income kind of will go down with that? And that then certainly implies you know some significant challenges for the state uh, in terms of tax revenue and um, and overall quality of life. I mean, people are that are living closer to the edge of um, you know being able to afford the basic things in life. We have more and more people like that that don't have health insurance that are right. demanding um, public, essentially getting public health. Care, accessing healthcare um, at public expense, um, you know those things present us with some real potential challenges down the road. And, and, and if I remember the numbers, they're about it's a little bit less than 15% of the population is living at or below the poverty line in Texas right now. I think so. Yeah. Which is actually an improvement over what it was a certain number of years ago, except the numbers are so much larger than actually a raw number of people more, more right. who are living in, in poverty in Texas. And a disproportionate number of those are in the predominantly Hispanic communities, Correct. right, as it and, happens. Yeah, and certainly then if you just look at the distribution of population by ethnicity, you can see right. pockets where there's real concentration. So the white population over time is going to decline as a percentage of the overall. Right now we're – our most recent projections have it's going to level off. Right, but um, as a percentage of the total. Oh, yes, as a percentage of the total, definitely decline. It will decline. Yeah, yeah. The African-American population is going to inch up. A little bit. But the Asian population, which actually has been the fastest growing of those populations over the last number of years, I think by 2050 you're projecting that the African-American population will actually uh, uh, tie, or the Asian population, pardon me, as a percentage of the overall population, well, will tie or possibly the pass the African-American yep. population. Yep. That's kind of amazing. We don't talk about that hardly ever. It is, and that kind of probably brings us back to our immigration <laughs> conversation we were having right. earlier because a lot of that's being driven by immigration now, but then there have they're in, in migration the migration of Asian. Yeah, yeah, immigration of Asians, and then you have them uh, engaging in family growing and you know essentially kind of really taking off. Right. So when we talk about 29 million Texans, what percentage of that number as quoted is undocumented? Um, I think... Uh, how big a thing is this? Because we hear so much, especially well, in political campaigns, that the undocumented problem is so significant. How significant is it really? Well, it's... Uh, the most recent estimates have the undocumented immigrant population at being at about 1.6 million people in the state. And so I think that's... Um, not, I, I should be able to do math on the fly, but I think that's around 9% of the population. Again, you're a demographer. <laughs> yeah, but usually I have a computer and a If you can't do math, there's no hope for us all, but okay, fine. Um, so about one point, you said 1.96 1. 6, 6, 1. 6 million, million out of undocumented 29 million, Texans. Right. Yeah. Is that number going to grow or shrink? 
Um, I think it's probably, it's been pretty stable since probably about 2016, 2014. Yeah. Um, it kind of depends on what happens with uh, the border. Of course, and it's politics, of, <laughs> right? Crackdown at the border, there could be fewer people and here. It's, and it has. I mean, so there have been a number of interesting things that have happened here. So, so it is estimated that in Texas, about 9% of our labor force are undocumented. Right. Immigrants. The last percentage I saw was 8.2% of our labor force is undocumented, which puts us slightly behind California and actually a couple percentage points behind the number one state, which is Nevada. Nevada has the highest percentage of undocumented workers. Yeah, and they well, they have a very big service industry in Nevada. These are like blackjack right. dealers? Yes, I don't know. All right. Well. Or in the hotel industry, in the hospitality industry, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. But so 8.2%, <laughs> you know, less than 9, more than 8% is a significant part of our workforce. Very significant. And, and if it's we, construction, it's service industry, it's restaurants, it's that's, you know, Yeah, main I mean the agriculture, construction, and the service industry, uh, maybe mainly hospitality and so on, are, are the largest percentages of where uh, um, unauthorized immigrants are working. But then uh, certainly agriculture is a big one. But ag agriculture is also more seasonal. Um, and I mean, so there are undocumented immigrants that are working here, but then they'll move north over the season. Um, and then I, I think, you know, certainly if you, if you were to think about if we have eight or nine percent of our labor force being unauthorized immigrants, if we were to lose that, I mean that would be a big hit to our economy. We couldn't sustain and it. Would really, and so, right. so it's it's quite a dilemma, and certainly, um, essentially, it creates this environment where uh, you have have people who are here living as an underclass. Essentially, they don't really have access to social services. Um, you know, they don't really have many rights if they have any, if they want to complain about something, they, they have some difficulty coming forward about that. And so, so essentially it, it, it's kind of created this sort of permanent underclass and, and with the hardening of the border, what has happened is there are the length of time that unauthorized immigrants have been living here has gone up and up. And it used to be pretty fluid in terms of people would come and work here for a while, make enough money or seasonally work here and then return home. Uh, and it, that worked and worked pretty well for our economy in terms of, you know, having a flexible, relatively inexpensive right. portion. You of know what's force. happened, uh, Lloyd, to the undocumented population in this country over time, that the number of people who are here overstaying visas actually exceeds the number who are here, quote unquote, illegally. Right. Is that also <laughs> the case in Texas? I believe it is. I'm, I don't yeah. know the numbers, but I have heard that. Yet. So, in fact, the change in federal policy at the border notwithstanding, we still may see a majority of the people here who, without documentation, be people who are simply visa overstays. Right. They come for a vacation and don't go home. Or don't go home when they – yeah, well, and again, <laughs> who would leave Texas? <laughs> right. Um, so how do you know how many people are here undocumented? Uh, well, the the best numbers that – are, are, that have been produced have been produced by the Pew Research Center. Uh, and they essentially use uh, a system for looking at the characteristics of individuals who are in the American Community Survey and using uh, those characteristics to estimate how many people. An esti it's an, es it's a, an, it's esti an estimate. estimate, but it's an educated estimate. Yes. Right. And actually there have been... Like the State Department produces their own estimates 
using slightly different methodology, right. and they're all pretty close. Well, you know, we're all focused on the question of counting undocumented Texans because what is coming up? The, the census. 2020 census. And yeah. as you know, there is a proposal on the table that the administration has gotten very firmly behind, and the Department of Commerce and the Secretary particularly, to ask a citizenship question on the census. This is very controversial. There's concerns that it will lead to a disproportionate undercount of Hispanic and immigrant households, which would in turn affect apportionment. You know, Texas is fixing based on population growth to get a certain number of additional congressional seats. There's partly a concern that this is being driven by politics and that if we don't, if we sort of force people not to be counted as part of the population through this question, that's the theory anyway, that our population growth will be less and therefore we'll get fewer seats in areas where the politics could get more complicated for people currently in power. That's the theory. Yeah, I mean, so... A lot of pushback <laughs> on the other side of that. Right, I mean, so... You have an opinion? Well, I think my opinion is is more that probably the politicization of the census is problematic. Uh, the Asking a question about citizenship in and of itself isn't necessarily a problem. We, in the American Community Survey, we ask questions about citizenship. So if, it wasn't, if it's not a problem, how come we haven't done it consistently? I think because we don't, for the purposes of the census, we don't necessarily need it. Then why would you need it now? I don't think that we do. Um, so, 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 so count you on the record believing that I this believe that citizenship question is not necessary. Yeah, I think if the citizenship question had been on the, all of the historic censuses, or even if it was decided earlier in the decade before they, the Census Bureau starts testing of the of the census forms. It, essentially, it was added at the last minute. And the Census Bureau is meticulous in terms of how they test the wording of every question, uh, and they, they'll, they'll put different versions of it. They'll test it and see which one gets the best response, and then they kind of hone in on that. Here, it's like at the very end, it's, it was decided, well, we're just going to add a question about citizenship. It wasn't at all part of that whole process of, of preparing, which actually starts more than 10 years before the next census. I mean, they're already working on planning for the 2030 census. I mean, so it's kind of like... So you think this was a political decision? I think it's... it's Yeah, I think it's... I think that seems pretty obvious that it, it essentially it was politically driven. It wasn't driven by the bureaucrats at the Census Bureau, I can tell you that. If you were the director of the U.S. Census Bureau, you would not include such a question on the census? If I were the... I think if I were the director of the Census Bureau, I would probably be... Um, if I had said that, I probably wouldn't be working there anymore. <laughs> I don't want to get you fired, Lloyd. Well, I'm not the director of the Census Bureau. No, <laughs> but expressing an opinion is quite something. Um, you love this work, don't you? Yeah, what's not to love? <laughs> uh, that's what I think about journalism also. Yeah. You told me that you, were, you went to Texas A&M. Yes. And you were a... a, a so, well, so, I started off the, in wildlife and wildlife, fisheries. Yeah, and yeah. fisheries. Yeah. yeah. So I started off as an undergraduate wildlife fisheries. I actually didn't think I was going to go to college. I was in the industrial cooperative track, and but I spent a lot of time outdoors and became very interested in that. So I went to Texas A&M, uh, was in wildlife and fisheries, and then I took a sociology class because you, you had to take one, and, and the professor had one lecture on population, and I was just like, that was it, I think. I mean, even though I didn't know I was going to be a demographer then, I probably knew it because I just loved it. And I wrote my, my semester paper on it. And then it kind of kept 
and I ended up changing my major to sociology. That was your aha moment. Wasn't yeah, it, it was one of those things. It's kind of like it was just one lecture, and it was just like that's it. For well, me. everybody's yeah. got an origin story, Lloyd. Um, <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for being okay. here. Okay, thank you. It's good talking to you. You've been listening to Point of Order, a proud member of the Texas Tribune's family of podcasts. Thanks to our guest, Texas State Demographer Lloyd Potter, and thanks to the sponsors of this episode, Texas Central, the Texas Association of Freestanding Emergency Centers, and the Texas State University System. Be sure to check out the Tribune's deep coverage of the 86th legislative session at texastribune.org. And if you like what you see there or hear here, tell your friends about us. Until next time, I'm Evan Smith.